Well, shalom. Good to be with you. Good to sing, Bruce. And if you give me the clicker. Oh, good. Oh, yep, that's it. That's it. Um, we're finally going to get to the tribulation. I told you I was, uh, I, I've gone a little too long. I had more information than time, but because I knew I'd be here the whole week, uh, I thought I'd go through it all. So bear with me. Uh, although we shouldn't be so anxious to go into the tribulation, even though we know we're not going to be in it. But let me give you a... a do I have a pointer? I thought I had a... Oh, there it is. Okay. We certainly know that Jesus Christ died. We've sung songs about it. We had a remembrance about it. I, I think it's central. That's what unites us as believers. We might have different views of aspects in the scripture, and that's what we discuss, uh, but certainly there should be no discussion about that, and we're thankful. And as a result of Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, by Acts chapter 2, the church is formed. It's all Jewish. They had a meeting in Acts chapter 15. I would have loved to have been there. Uh, how many of you men serve, uh, I don't, some, we call it a business meeting, an elders meeting, a, whatever you call it. How many of you served? Have, they, have you ever gone to midnight? No, maybe not. We did when I, I served, uh, when I was in Chicago. And we got into it. Uh, I, I mean, we got into it. There's issues. Everybody's got issues. But can you imagine Jewish people, Jewish people, uh, discussing, and the topic is you, if you're Gentile here. You, what are we going to do with these people? Are, they gonna, are we going to circumcise the men? Are we going to put them under the law? What are we going to do? And obviously, the decision was the right one, directed by the Spirit of God, because the church age, the period of the church, we're not under the law. We're, we're, the church is composed of Jewish and Gentile people together. It's a brand new body. It's a mystery. It wasn't known by the prophets. And so we're living in that age right now. And during this age, and I, again, I, I think the Spirit of God is so gracious complimenting the two speakers, I think, as we're talking about the future and what's going to happen, uh, uh, Dave Glock is telling us how to live now how to cope and live, and how to maintain a Christian worldview. And it's created a lot of discussion. I hope you've discussed it. In my own family, we've, we've had discussions about it. But Jesus dies, rises again, the church is born, and Israel is now going to be dealt with its 70th week. And that's what we're going to look at the first part of this week now. So, if I can have that next slide. Yep, first one. Yep. I'll start while it's going on. Today we want to talk about God's plan, God's purpose and planning. Scripture tells us that the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. And the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Psalm 33 
in verse 11. Proverbs says, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, it will stand. Isaiah chapter 14 says, This is the plan devised against the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out against all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for a stretched out hand, who can turn it back? And then Isaiah chapter 46. 46 says, Remember this, and be assured, recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. Genesis chapter 3, which I've mentioned before, talking about the seed of a woman. That's the purpose and plan of God after sin. Then yesterday we talked about Isaiah, excuse me, Abraham, chapter 12, verse 1 through 3 in the book of Genesis. And God promised Abraham unconditionally a land, a seed, and a blessing. Later, that promise was passed to Isaac and to Jacob. And yesterday, we talked about that and saw the specific verses which actually said this from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Why is it so specific? If you would have asked me that 40 or 50 years ago, it seemed, okay. But today, as Islam has grown, Islam's major argument is against Christianity and Judaism as to who's the blessing of Abraham's son. Who who gets that blessing? And the scriptures are very, very specific. So the hope of Israel was always a coming king and a kingdom. It would be a righteous kingdom characterized by peace. Even in the diaspora, as we talked about yesterday, at Passover, the hope is summed up at the conclusion when they say next year in Jerusalem. That statement looks forward to the Messiah coming and bringing all the Jewish people to Israel to live in peace. And in order for that to happen, there has to be a plan specific to Israel. There has to be a period of time given to accomplish it. And there is a purpose for all of it. And I'd like you to turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, or starting in verse 24, really. Daniel, chapter 9, starting in verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem 
until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolation are determined. Then shall he confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation, which is determined, it poured out on the desolate. So there's a plan, there's a period of time, and there's a purpose for all of it. And in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, we want to look at this specific, these specific verses because this gives us why all this is going to take place. We're in the Old Testament. We're part of the program of God. And Daniel is receiving this information that's prophetic to his time. And let's see what the promise is. First, six things are laid out in chapter uh, 24. To finish the transgression, end of sin and to reconcile iniquity. Those are the first three. So these things were given to Daniel, Daniel's people, and Daniel's holy place. So this is for Israel. And the first three were accomplished through Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah came to Israel, as prophesied, offered himself the kingdom, wanted them to receive him, And he came to pay the price. And so, finish the transgression of Israel. That's accomplished, really, at at the cross. As it turns out, at the cross, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. This morning we quoted uh, that verse, For God so loved the world. Jesus came for all, but he specifically came to fulfill prophecy to Israel. So, to finish the transgression, the end of sin, there's going to come a time national sin will be ended. It doesn't look like we're at that time yet. If you visit Israel, it certainly doesn't seem so. To reconcile iniquity. So, in God's plan, the first three of this involved the sins of Israel. These are their sins. And God needs to deal with them. And he did so through the Messiah. The last three, which is to bring in everlasting righteousness, well, we know that's going to take place at the return of Christ. But in Daniel's day, Daniel was unclear. It seemed it would be a seamless thing. That that there'd come a point when Israel would receive the Messiah and the kingdom would be set up. So to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up the vision, vindication, and to anoint the most holy place. In fact, if you want to understand what's happening in the millennium, one of the things you could do is read Ezekiel starting in chapter 40 and go to uh, verse 48. And so 
these, these things are the, the outcome. The purpose of God is to deal with the sins of Israel and then to put them in a place of blessing. Well, 77s, that's literally the Hebrew. That's how we translate weeks. There's literally periods of time. Shavua is the actual word. And so it's a unit of measure. It can't be days or months. And the reason, it doesn't say so in the text, but it tells us what's going to be accomplished, and those things haven't been accomplished. So obviously it can't be weeks or months. It has to be years. And they're divided differently. Seventy weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city. So we know it's Jewish. We know what it's going to accomplish, dealing with the sins of Israel and then the blessings that will come. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. So we know that the first part of this involves what we find out in the text, the 49 years. Uh, it, it is a period of time in which the temple will be restored. Now, I told you I graduated in the top 10% of the lower third of my class, so I didn't do the math. What I did do is go to some reliable sources who have taken, taken this math, and that's what it is. It's very specific. You've got to have a historian on one hand and a CPA on the other. The historian can find that date, which turns out to be about 445 B.C., Artaxerxes, uh, had a decree to build the temple, to rebuild that temple. We know it was in 445 B.C. by taking the calculations. And so that's the first part of the, uh, of the text. The second part says this. There shall be, so there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So that seven weeks is 49 years and then the 62 weeks, the street shall be built again, the wall, even troublous times. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. Again, historian and an accountant. It turns out that if you calculate the days, it comes exactly to the time of the week before the crucifixion when Jesus presented himself as king of Israel. Right to the day. He presents himself as the king. I'm here. In fact, the last week, which if you haven't sat under Dave Glock's Life of Christ, just, just amazing. If you haven't, go on Emmaus. Do they still have it? What's the... Zip, the uh, say it louder. Go on it. You can hear Dave Glock preach on the life of Christ. The last week of Christ's life... He was speaking as the king of Israel. He was the prophet and the priest and the king at the temple mount. And he spoke with authority. He is the king. And we know what happened. He's rejected as the king. And so after 69 weeks, the king who's rejected is hung on a cross. He dies not just for the Jewish people. He dies for the whole world. And if you notice, it goes on to say, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So 
After the 69th week, the sanctuary is going to be destroyed. When did that happen? It happened about 30-some years after, 70 AD. Depending on the date, I'm not, ask, ask Dave Glock or Dave McLeod, they'll give you the exact date. I, I'm not sure. I've read so many different experts. I assume it's 33 AD. But the calendar and people are still studying it out. So let's just say 33 AD. 70 AD is when the temple was destroyed. Exactly the way the text says in Daniel. And so the temple is to be destroyed. And then it says this. Then he, well who? It's going to be the person who's related to the person who destroyed the temple. Who destroyed the temple? The Romans. There's a big question today, and lots of people weigh in. I mean lots of people. Is the Antichrist uh, Jewish? Is he Muslim? Who, Who is he? Well, for me, until I see other evidence, the context seems that whoever destroyed the temple... It would seem to be that the Antichrist, this person who is going to come back, is going to come out of that system. Oh, man. As a 65-year-old and as a person who was saved in 1975, uh, there were all kinds of theories as to how this was going to happen. The European Union, he'll come through that. Well, at one time there were around 10 nations. Pretty close. It seemed pretty close. Now... Now there's like a hundred and some nations. So how is that going to happen? I don't know. But I do know that at the end, at the Antichrist, is, there's going to be an organized ten-nation confederacy at that time. So it really doesn't matter how many there are now. By the time this is supposed to happen, there will be ten. And so this person is to confirm a covenant with many for one week. And the question is, Do these 490 years run consecutively? There are some believers who would say that they take every word of God direct, uh, literal, would say that it was consecutive. And so if you want to know who the Antichrist is from these brothers and sisters in Christ, they would tell you it was Nero. If you want to know about the kingdom, they would say we're in the kingdom right now. That's hard for me. Mainly because I identify with the flow of the text and, the, and Jewish interpretation. I was looking for the Messiah. Uh, and the Messiah is supposed to bring the kingdom. The kingdom is described in Judaism. It's described in the Bible as a time of peace. And so... We look at it, and I'm speaking as a Jewish person, we look at the kingdom. We look at the time of Messiah to be an unprecedented, wonderful time where there is peace. And I look at the world the way it is today, especially listening to the messages this morning, it seems there's tumult, even within Christendom. If this is the kingdom... This means this is the best God can do. That makes no sense to me. And no sense to me 
as far as the text is concerned, because if it had to run consecutively, it took a long time for the temple to be destroyed in 70 A.D. Either way, there shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. This is one week. This is the 70th week. And so we take this text, and I'd like you to turn to a couple of passages uh, before we move on from this. I'd like you to look at Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 12. In Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, it says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look upon me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And then in chapter 13, and uh, I think Dave Glock quoted this, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David, and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. And then in verse 8, it says, And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. The period of time that the rabbis call the birth pangs of the Messiah, it's in the Talmud, I have several quotes that I could give you about, in the Talmud, how the rabbis are looking to this period of time as the birth pangs of the Messiah, where it starts off, not too bad, far apart, and grows closer and closer together. Well, what's the purpose of this period? The purpose of this period of time is, first of all, to end wickedness. Turn with me to Matthew. Now we're going to look at Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. In verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, in the context here, this is in the tribulation period. And so the person taken away was judged. Judgment. This is the, a, a period of judgment. And in Matthew chapter 24, and verse 37, he's correlating it, Jesus is, correlating it to the times of Noah. Noah and his family went in. Everybody else was out, and they were taken out. The same thing's going to happen in this period. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah 13. Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. He will destroy its sinners from it. And then in that same book, but in chapter 24, verse 18. And it shall be that he who flees from the noise of fear shall fall into the pit, and he who comes up from the midst of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows from on high are open, and the foundation of the earth are shaken. The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, 
and shall totter like a hut. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it, and it will fall and not rise again. So when we think of this period of time, it's, a, it's an unprecedented, unprecedented period. So what's going to happen in this first half of the tribulation period? Well, first we... Okay, wait a minute. Okay, there's Daniel 9, which we went over. Deuteronomy talks about the land, the land promise, which I mentioned from uh, Abraham in Genesis. Second Samuel talks about the king, which is going to be forever, uh, David's greater son, and, I, and Jeremiah talks about the blessing. So Abrahamic covenant, chapter 12, land, seed, and a blessing comes from that. Okay. The beginning of the birth pangs. If you turn with me to Matthew, back to Matthew chapter 24, I'd like to talk about what's going to happen after this covenant is signed. A covenant that's going to be made by a person who's coming out of the Roman system is going to make a covenant with Israel. He's going to offer peace. That's what Daniel says. A covenant of peace. And here's what's going to happen. Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, this might not mean a lot to you. It's pretty significant. If you've been to Israel, I can take you to the south wall of the temple, well, actually, below the Temple Mount, where archaeologists have discovered the actual stones that were tipped over. They're there, exactly the way Christ mentioned. And when they're walking by this huge structure, now the temple was big, but there were other things on it. Herod had taken Mount Moriah and filled it in. Uh, It's the same place where Abraham took Isaac. But he filled it in, and there are, there's a huge area uh, in which now stands the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And the wall that many of you are familiar with, sometimes called the Wailing Wall, it's the Western Wall. Well, is it part of the temple? Why did the Jewish people regard it as so holy? It's, it's the holiest spot for Jewish people. It really has nothing to do with the actual wall. Because that wall's a retaining wall. Uh, Herod filled in Mount Moriah to make that top part flat. And there's a square that's still there that holds the dirt in. And when I tell you it holds the dirt in, the stones that are used in that retaining wall are tons and tons, hundreds of tons. There's one particular stone that we, we show people as we take a tour through the tunnel, it's called, is about 60 feet long. It's about four feet deep and about four feet high. And they use no mortar in the stones. It's a huge stone. So, but what's this wall? Where they're standing, they believe, and there's debate among scholars as to the exact location of where the temple is, 
but they believe it's the closest place to the Holy of Holies. Holy of Holies isn't there, but it's the closest spot. And so they want to be in the closest spot they can be. And Jewish people from all over the world have come. Christians have come from all over the world. In fact, if you go, which I, of course, encourage you to do, if you do, there's actually a way. I've, I've done it with, uh, with my wife, Alice, and uh, you can call, and there's a camera, and you can wave, and they can actually see you in live time. Well, what happens? In Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus said, look, not one stone's going to be left. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, so they, they came up. This is after the Passover. And they sat and came privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and at the end of the age? That's what they were looking for, the kingdom. When is this going to happen? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and and deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and see that you are not troubled by all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. The characterization and the rabbis, unsaved to agree, look to these birth pangs of the Messiah. And what will they look like? If you take Matthew chapter 24 and then open up to Revelation chapter 6, you'll see parallel passages. The four horses of the apocalypse actually coordinate with the first part of Matthew. They're the, literally the same things. False messiahs, deception, wars, uh, famines. And when you look in, uh, at Revelation chapter 6, the first seal is the Antichrist, the rider on the white horse. He makes a peace agreement with Israel, coming to today's period of time, there is amongst Christians, and I thank God for that, a great concern for the Palestinian people. You need to know we're called the Friends of Israel. That's what we were established. Established in 1938, uh, 10 years before Israel became a nation, by believers in Jesus Christ. That was our call. That's, That's what we, that's, that's what moves us. That's our passion. But that does not mean that we don't like Christians or Palestinian Christians or Palestinian people for that matter. That just doesn't happen to be our organization's call. There are other ministries. This is a camp ministry. Once people decide to have a camp ministry, that's their focal point. That's what they're going to center in on. That doesn't mean they don't like adult ministry or nursing home ministry. It simply means that this is their call. And so when we, we think in terms of, of Christians who are hurting and think of what's going on in Israel, there is stress within the body of Christ. I just wrote an article, believe it or not, I just turned it in before I came here, and it's going to appear in the Christmas issue 
of Israel my glory. And I'll just tell you that it was on Bethlehem. Bethlehem. In May of this year, the Christ at the Checkpoint, it's, it's, if you go on their website, I encourage you to go on it, by all means. Christ at the Checkpoint. Christ at the Checkpoint is Christians from all over the world who come to Bethlehem in the name of Jesus and with a desire for peace. Certainly worthy. In May, they invited a member of the Palestinian Authority who has mimicked the Palestinian Authority's message since, the, since Bethlehem came under their control. And that message is, Jesus the Christ is a Palestinian. Jesus the Christ is the first Palestinian rebel. That's what this person said. Yasser Arafat said it. Uh, 1995, Mahmoud Abbas said it. But they said it as officials of the Palestinian Authority, and they were speaking to the people. The difference in May was that Christians who are supposed to believe in the Bible received the message that Jesus is a Palestinian. And applauded. Now, I don't know how you feel about that. I can tell you how I feel. Not, I'm not against the Palestinians. What I'm against is, is Christians who welcome untruth. That's disturbing to me. To buy into the political line is disturbing to me. And so, when we think in terms of Matthew chapter 24 and Jesus Jesus taking, taking his disciples and talking to them, this first part of the tribulation, there's so much deception, and people are going to buy it. Can we see that today? Absolutely. I, I think we see it all the time. But in this period of time, it's going to be much worse. There's false prophets, the Antichrist. Wars and rumors of war, the second seal is the war horse. The Famine that's going to come. The third seal in Revelation 6 is famine. Pestilence in verses 6 and 7 is the fourth seal, where there's sword, famine, and wild beasts. Martyrdom in uh, verse 9 of Matthew. In the fifth seal, there's martyrdom. There are going to be believers who are going to cry out to God, How long? It's an awful period of time. That, that verse in Zechariah 13 that I read to you, this whole period of time starts off with birth pangs. Things are crazy when you read Revelation. The total world population at the beginning of this period, before the middle, is almost half the world's population. That's crazy. Uh, seven billion people in the world now. So you subtract the rapture. I don't have that number. So I can't tell you how many. But if you just approximate, that's three and a half billion people before the middle of this period. And the middle period, which we'll talk about tomorrow, the middle period where the abomination of desolation takes place and goes to the end, that, that period of time is called the Great Tribulation. 
Jesus calls it the great tribulation. So what, in summary here, what exactly happens that um, we can look at in the first part? Well, Jesus is the only one qualified to break the seals in Revelation chapter 5. He's the only one. He's Jewish. He's the Goel. He's the kinsman redeemer. He came as a man, as a kinsman. He paid the price, and he was willing to do that for us. And so there's this, this seal document, sealed with seven seals, and he, the lamb, takes those seals, and he breaks them. And the seal judgments are poured out in Revelation 6, 1 through 17. And then in this period of time, there's two witnesses raised up, and, and good scholars agree figure out when do these two witnesses come. It seems to me it's at the beginning because by the middle, when Antichrist is going to be the abomination, these two witnesses die. By the way, these two witnesses, although not named, are Jewish. This is a Jewish period. Besides that period, Revelation chapter 7 and 14 talks about 144,000 from every tribe, from 12 tribes of Israel. What's their purpose? As black as this period is, the gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached. It's the gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached. This period of time is looking forward to the king coming back. The amazing thing about his grace is that this period of postponement, if you will, the setting aside of Israel, God is calling a people from everywhere to the cross, as we remembered on Sunday. What a blessing. This period of time, they're talking about the kingdom, and it's coming in power and the judgment that is going to come. And most people who receive this gospel, who is Jesus Christ, Yeshua, that's who's going to be preached, they're going to die because they're not going to take the tattoo or whatever it is electronically on their head. And so... The seal judgments, the rise of the Antichrist, the two witnesses, uh, the 144,000 that will come. All these things take place at the beginning of the tribulation period. All right. When I came on Saturday night, I, I told you a girl, woman came up to me, Jewish, and said, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? I think it makes a big difference, certainly based on the promises of God, but even more so, we know this can happen at any time. If those of you who are familiar at all with the Brethren movement, if, if you're not, even Bible churches, Bible-believing churches, many missionaries historically from the United States held to this eschatology. If you talk about just the practice of believing that Christ can come at any moment, and when he does, he's going to pour out his wrath upon the planet. That was the motivating factor for lots of believers to go to the world while there's time to communicate biblical truth. And so, knowing what's coming, shouldn't that burden us? Shouldn't that motivate us to tell people 
about what's coming. Well, are they going to believe it? I, t- I t- already told you, there's some Christians who don't believe what I'm saying. So, it's hard. But I believe it's true. And I believe it's true because the Word says it's true. And tomorrow we're going to look at some of the descriptions in the second half that quite frankly, John, it's the revelation of Jesus, he's trying to communicate this revelation, and it's, it's difficult to try to use words to describe what Jesus wants us to know of his revelation of this future period of time, this 70th week of Daniel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, hard to imagine as we think of the Jewish people, one-third killed, murdered, because they were Jewish. And as horrible as that is, what a blessing to know that Friends of Israel was raised up because of it. And to this day, 80 years later, is communicating the gospel to those same people. It's frightening to think that two-thirds of the Jewish people will be killed in the 70th week, this time of Jacob's trouble, unprecedented. And also, untold millions of Gentiles killed as well. And all through the midst, believers who are being saved during this period of time, martyred for their faith. It's frightening. It's scary. But you promised the church good news, that we're protected from his wrath to come. But even knowing that still should motivate us, concern us, and move us to while there's time to tell others about him. Lord, help us to do that. Even tonight, Help us to think of one person, Jewish or Gentile, that needs to hear the message, that needs to be prayed for, followed up with, needs to have a solid testimony of a believer, a friendship with them. Tell them how much we care about them. In Jesus' name, amen.